Hello and welcome to our 30th episode of Three Peas in a Pod. I'm Paul Jarvis, editor of Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. And I'm joined today by my deputy, Jonathan Davis. Hi, Paul. As well as the man in charge of our global projects tracker, Rory Chapman. Hi, Paul. In this episode, we'll be asking what the UK's latest national infrastructure assessment means for private finance, as well as returning to our old friend, political risk. And Rory will round things off with a few of his top project picks from recent weeks. So the UK's National Infrastructure Commission recently launched the second National Infrastructure Assessment, a document that takes a long-term look at the UK infrastructure sector and provides recommendations on what the government should be doing today to set the groundwork for the next 30 years to infrastructure development and use. And you know that's no mean feat, given the changes that affect the industry and, well, affect all of us, really, and society. You know, for example, it's easy to think how technology has changed the world over since 1993, which was obviously 30 years ago. Back then, we were just starting to dial up the internet and we were all you know, still reeling from the very first text message having been sent the previous year, while also still waiting impatiently for deliveries because Amazon wasn't founded until 1994. So when you think that's the kind of context that we're looking at, it's quite a big thing to be taking on to try and look 30 years into the future and crystal ball gaze around what's going to be happening then and, and therefore what infrastructure will need. But nonetheless, the experts at the Infrastructure Commission have estimated that private finance will need to increase from around 30 to 40 billion over the past decade to around 40 to 50 billion in the 2030s and 2040s. So a, a 10 billion increase on what we've seen over the last decade. Yeah, Jonathan, I wonder if you want to start off by with some of your thoughts around this. For me, it's a bit of a difficult one to digest because I spend a lot of my time looking at the US and seeing how they're rolling out their strategy right now in terms of really putting their money where their mouth is in terms of industrial strategy, which you would never have heard of five, 10 years ago. It just wasn't the thing. And I'm thinking of just taking hydrogen, which is a sector, which is a big part of the National Infrastructure Commission's recent report. In the US, they've just rolled out seven hydrogen hubs, which are going to crowd in about 40 billion of private investment. And in one fell swoop, they're looking to create 30% of America's clean hydrogen production. I think how impactful that is, how actual real that is, and then you kind of compare that with what's going on in, in the UK, where it still feels almost in the discussion phase, it's still difficult to get to move it into the action phase. And obviously, there's a lot of different circumstances that create that. We have seen a lot of progress in, say, carbon capture, which the UK is looking to be a, a real leader in. But with the backdrop of the kind of political dimension in the UK that what's happening, it's hard to see how it does convert from a report into spades in the ground. Yeah, I think you mentioned obviously hydrogen, and there's a reference to that in the report, which talks about the public sector needing to take some risk on that if you know, it's going to attract the private finance into that and actually turn it into an industry. And yeah, I think there's a certain element of that, of the UK sort of having these ideas of we want a hydrogen industry, we want to be the leaders in carbon capture, etc. But not necessarily having the, the structures in place. And obviously the report feeds into that and sort of feeds into the point around creating that structure. Totally. But if you look at how the US are doing it in the recent announcement, you've got up in the northwest, they're leveraging the resources they have in terms of renewables. 
down in Texas, they're leveraging the resources they have in terms of natural gas, but they're all trying to use those to build that next generation of energy and trying to get all the different strengths that they have to push in the same direction. The UK does have a number of great strengths in this area to build off of. But again, as I was saying, they've managed to really figure out what they can do in the here and now. That is the big challenge for whoever's going to be deciding how to implement this, is which strengths do you leverage, which winners do you pick? And that's something you often hear at round tables. It's hard to see what role the government play because you want it to be a free market move that helps shift in the way that's the best for the industry. But they also do need to provide a little bit of a shove in the right direction. They obviously are doing that in some areas, and but there are lots of pipes that need to be connected to help a whole new industry take off, which you're seeing other places taking great steps towards. It's not just the US, obviously, in the Middle East, they're looking to try and leverage their resources to become a real leader in clean energy too. So the race is really on and it is a great time to have one of these reports come out because it does help you take stock of where we're at and what we need to do to move forward. But it's always that I think everyone's itching to go. There's so much money ready to go into some of these sectors and the UK is a great place to invest. So hopefully they could start piecing it all together. Yeah, certainly. I think the push around... As I say, it's, you know, carbon capture, hydrogen, all that kind of stuff is is there. But as you say, sort of connecting it up to make it into a, a viable option and, and getting the government to accept that this isn't just a, a private infrastructure play, that there needs to be some sort of public involvement, whether that's finance, whether that's risk-taking, a number of different things all brought together that creates a package that the private sector can look at and say, yes, we can look at that and think that that's a good investment. And yes, we believe that this is going to be a good investment that's going to, it's going to stick around for a time to come that we can actually work with. I mean, that's where hopefully the UK Infrastructure Bank can help provide that bit of impetus. You recently interviewed Ian Brown, the head of banking at the UK Infrastructure Bank, didn't you? What was the kind of sense you got of how they might play in this? Yes, there's definitely a keen interest in these areas and having that role as a i guess as some almost as a mediator that's probably not quite the right phrase but but as a kind of go between between what the government can do on the one hand and what the private sector can do on the other hand and i think you know the infrabank wants to be there in the middle joining those dots together and hopefully it will over time be able to play that role and and will find the projects that it can invest in or support in in other ways and you know work with the government whether that's through guarantees system whether that's through equity debt you know it's got a lot of tools there at its disposal so hopefully we'll start to see those turning into actual investments on the ground that that are getting these projects off the ground yeah totally and the uk does have a really strong track record as i'm sure everyone all these listeners do also know and we think about you know contracts for difference we've got rab is coming out to try and drive investment into sectors that otherwise could be difficult to see how you get private investment into so there is lots of positive green shoots coming out and as as i mentioned earlier carbon capture hydrogen is all positive and it's all going in the right direction so hopefully we can see more of this yes yeah i guess the big question on everyone's lips really is what happens under a change of government as well and i think you know, I mentioned at the start that we'll be talking about political risk and we'll, we'll go into that in a bit more detail, I think, soon. But in terms of this infrastructure assessment and what it delivers, a lot of people are sort of looking at it in 
probably thinking, well, yep, it's fine. That That's all good. But what does the next government want to do with this? I think there's such a feeling, particularly we're talking about this not long after two by-elections that saw huge swings from Conservatives to Labour, resulting in both seats moving to Labour. And there's an expectation among many people now that that's the kind of situation we're going to see in 12 months time, whenever the next election is. It has to be before the end of 2024. So... You know, whenever that comes, I think the change that is expected means that people are sort of asking those questions now. Well, what what happens in 18 months' time? What if the current direction of travel is not quite what we're going to see under a new government? Yeah, well, on the surface of it, following the Labour conference, which was about a fortnight ago from when we're recording, there is a lot of crossover in terms of the infrastructure assessment and the way that Keir Starmer spoke about his, should they get in, potential plans. For instance, he mentioned about being at risk and trying to get the private sector to come in at risk and to share the rewards. It ticks a lot of boxes for those listening in industry, I think. And he even spoke about a decade. And that's the kind of stability that people want in terms of that long-term investment that infrastructure obviously needs. So it is obviously too early to say it could be a long time until any general election comes. So there's a lot of here uh, in between then. But in terms of the signals that I thought Keir Starmer was giving out, I think it will definitely be perking people's ears up in the industry. There could be a, a new approach coming. Yeah, I just think then going back to your point around what happens now and how right now we're seeing other countries taking a bit of a lead on some of these areas and it would be nice, wouldn't it, for the UK to be you know doing the same. I guess... The difficulty is that in an, in an environment where the private sector is not particularly confident in the current government, then will they want to go in now or will they rather keep their powder dry and wait until you know, such time as there is a government they feel confident working with? And yeah, we're 12 months on from the Liz Truss mini-budget disaster that uh, you know brought down her time in office and... Yes, there's talk of, you know, people are feeling more confident generally around the government. There's a bit more kind of positivity. But just recently, the Global Infrastructure Investors Association put out an announcement. They'd done a kind of survey looking at the attractiveness of the UK as a destination for private capital and found that it's actually fallen to an all-time low. So people are still not looking at the UK and thinking, yep, yeah, everything's sorted there we're you know happy to go in and invest there so that's going to hold things back undoubtedly over the next 12 months or so regardless really of who's in office after the next election you would think there would be some sort of bounce positively because you're going to have some sort of clarity whereas at the moment everyone's just assuming and just sitting and waiting and assuming that there's going to be changes coming i wonder how much of that shift in positivity or or that increase in scepticism is down to the fact that other places in the world have been able to put in these huge packages that boost investment and really help obviously thinking about IRA and what the EU's packages have been able to give in terms of subsidies that is it is a different landscape and the approach is different so in terms of I wonder how much boost it would give even if there is a new political party in town that the jump has really been got by a few places around the world but 
as I just said, it is a different approach, the business model approach, which can take some time, but can really unleash the private sector like we saw with CFD. It's a fascinating time to be part of it. But to take a different approach, it can be unnerving as someone who really wants to be world leading in all the different infrastructure sectors that we have across us. So take, for instance, nuclear power. We've got a great project in Sizewell C coming along. And the opportunity then to help spread the understanding and the capacity around the world and for Britain to become a leader in, in nuclear energy is so there to be seen. But it does need the support to get it off the ground because it's not easy. Yeah, and nuclear is probably a really good example, actually, where there is buy-in from across the political divide in the UK on the use of nuclear, the need for Sizewell C. So, you know, if you can get that kind of buy-in, then of course, yes, you can probably get investment going into those areas because people are going to realise it's going to be there and there's the opportunity will be around for the long term rather than just until there's another change of leader, which we've had plenty of in the UK over the past few years. I mean, this obviously moves us nicely into the conversation around political risk. And you've talked about the fact that we've seen packages from the US with IIJA and IRA, the the pieces of legislation that have really put a whole load of money into infrastructure investment. And on the other side, the European work that they've done as as the European Union to create a kind of, well, try and create really a counterbalance to, to what's been going on in the US. You know, when we talk to people a lot of the time, they refer to other places around the world, places like China or places like Saudi Arabia and other parts of the Middle East, perhaps, where political risk is just simply not an issue. Uh, obviously makes a big difference. And, and you see you know, things being delivered on a timescale that is just not really possible in you know many democracies. So, yeah, in terms of the question and political risk, I guess that's why we're seeing you know, a lot of interest in the Middle East at the moment. You know, places like Saudi Arabia have been able to say, we want to do this by 2030, 2014. And, and actually, we're going to make it happen because no one here has to worry about an election in, in a year's time, which has its obviously has its benefits for long term investment, but has its various other negatives as well. But just in terms of some of the things that you've been seeing in the US around political risk, obviously, there's some big issues going on there at the moment. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's always been a problem. I've spoken to a few people, but really Sandra McQuain, who's contributing to P3 Bulletin, has been really on top of this because basically in her backyard in Louisiana, you've got a major project called the Calcasieu Bridge, which is part of the interstate or I-10, which is going over the Calcasieu River. It's a major crossing and the bridge, the existing bridge needs to be replaced because it's at risk of falling down. So... This project's been a long time in the pipeline. It's already got a winner selected. They're working together to try and finalise the proposal. And there's a date on when the final proposal can be accepted. And as we're recording now, it's only a couple of days away until there's a crunch meeting about whether the proposal will be accepted by Louisiana Department of Transportation. But since the project's genesis and over the last couple of months there's been a change in governor and it's shifted across the aisle and big projects like this can often come with a massive lightning rod attached to them which is that they're huge political projects it doesn't matter whether they're p3 or not if it's seen as something which is perhaps the previous 
entity's flagship project, it can get a target on its back for whether that's right or wrong. Hopefully you want to see whatever is the right project actually come through. But in this case, there's a lot of anxiety in the industry about whether this project could end up being kind of kicked into the long grass because of that governor change. And some of the people that Sandra has been speaking to, you really see how it's the heightened political atmosphere, which has only increased over the last decade or so, where partisanship can really get in the way of what is just pragmatic thinking. And it's a real concern. I've spoken to a number of public authorities and some leading some major pipelines who say it's never been like this before. And it's a major concern that you can put all of this work in, you can get real confidence and real momentum, and then it can just be over in an instant. And in terms of confidence for the market, you're then looking as a, if you're a major investor and there's only so many of these projects coming along, the next time it comes along in your state, you might think, I'm not going to bother investing in this. So it can really hamper that long-term outlook. And it's, it, as I say, it's a major concern for people. Yes. And, you know, we've talked before about the role of major bodies across North America, you know, the Canadian Council in Canada, the AIAI in the US, and the, you know, the role that they have played very positively over the years in trying to get buy-in for the use of P3 or different models and actually getting the public sector to understand. And obviously the AIAI is doing a lot of work at the moment, providing training to public sector officials so that they understand. But as you say, people have never seen things quite this polarized before, which makes it very difficult because you can give people all the tools and the information and the training that you can. But at the end of the day, if it's if it comes down to a political issue of that person's Democrat, I'm Republican, therefore I'm not doing what they're doing, and vice versa, then it's really hard to go anywhere from there. Yeah, it totally is. And in this case, the argument is around the tolling aspect, I think we understand. And the fact that it's an interstate, some people are opposed to doing that because of the fact that it might be local people paying for what is a nationally significant project. But on the other side of that, you have a fundamentally needed project which is the fact that it's dangerous to have as we've seen across the united states some expiring infrastructure of this major scale so it has to happen and the current louisiana dot secretary has written a letter ahead of the meeting this week to say that it would be short-sighted to scrap this project right now so you know it's really up in the air and we've seen it on this side of the pond with hs2 which has had such a lot of work, such a lot of debate around it. And now ultimately, Rishi Sunak has cancelled it. So you you do see these flagship projects get cancelled and then really dent the confidence of investors in the UK into these projects because it's just not easy to see how they pencil out the next time. Yeah, and the um, HS2, I think you know, they've been figures banded around since that cancellation that 30 billion or so pounds has been spent on that that we're never going to get back and that you know has gone into different bits of the project that have been cancelled over the last several years and obviously i mentioned earlier about the difference between democracies and, and other countries and you look at the uk struggling to get this high-speed rail off the ground it's been talked about for well over a decade now and we've managed to or 
at some point it's expected that we will manage to build a small proportion of, of what was originally planned whereas you look to someone like China and they're sort of building high-speed lines across the country you know at a, a huge rate of knots and have I'm not sure how many it is they've produced since we first started talking about HS2 in the UK, but plenty to get the industry interested in. But I think just going back to you know, your point on on the US market as well, and one of the sort of big sticking points or one of the big difficulties around political risk comes back to this question of the, the different tribes, really, and, and how tribal politics is. I mean, not just there, in the UK and other parts of the world as well, but Specifically, I know on this, we've heard talk of people saying, well, I as a representative in the state, I'm not going to vote differently to the way that my governor wants me to vote or potentially my former governor, if you're on the Democrat side. So it comes down to what is the party line rather than what is the, the best need for the the community. Yeah, I think that's the really frustrating thing for a lot of people. And like you say, if you've got that investment going in or planned to go in and then it gets pulled at the last minute and the companies will have spent large amounts of money getting to this stage, you know, they've gone through the whole bidding process, the procurement process, they've been shortlisted, they've got to be the preferred bidder. And that requires a team to spend a lot of time and money on all the time preparing for this and to find then that it's cancelled not because of any inherent issue maybe with the the project or with with your approach to the project but actually it's because of effectively politics i think that's just really frustrating and and results in you know people saying well i'm not going to do business in that community anymore yeah absolutely i mean i'm sure the entire industry is hoping that it will proceed and hopefully the pressure of the need of this project will mean that legislators will be able to look past any kind of political difference and just to make sure that people are safe on the interstate and it's got the capacity that it needs. But often when I've spoken to people about this, they always return to the role of you know, that public engagement and making sure that the local area are really on side because they are the best ambassadors for any project and no legislator, well, hopefully no legislator can ignore their actual constituents if they're really calling out for something like this. So I'm sure we'll talk about this on, on the next podcast or or down the line because it is really big news in the industry for a project to get this far and to feel so anxious about it. Yeah, it's quite sad to see because there's a lot of progress all around the industry. Hopefully there's not going to be many slip-ups. Yeah, definitely. Now, it's time for Jonathan and Rory to discuss the projects that we've been seeing come through over recent weeks. So over to you. Great, thanks, Paul. Okay, Rory, so what have we been seeing? There's been a lot of projects actually coming down the line on both sides of the pond recently. What's catching your eye? Yeah, so thanks, Jonathan. I thought this week I'd focus a little bit on housing and regeneration projects. We've seen quite a few coming through, particularly in the UK, also one or two in the US and Australia as well. So seems to be quite a sort of emerging sector, you could say. 
We've seen eight new housing and regeneration projects in the UK, which have been launched since the beginning of October. Two in the London borough of Sutton alone. Highlights include the Manchester City Council tendering a contract for a private partner to support the delivery of at least 1,600 dwellings and the redevelopment of a, of a shopping centre in the Withenshaw. Wolverhampton City Council are expected to agree a deal with the Muse-led English Cities Fund as a development partner to bring forward the City Centre West Quarter. scheme is due to result in the development of around a 1,000 new homes and an improved food, leisure and retail offer, which will all be connected by public spaces. So quite big movements in the north of the country in that sector. In south-east London, we've seen a contract notice issued seeking a joint venture partner for a major redevelopment project in Charlton by housing association the Hyde Group, where private partners will be required to deliver up to 1,200 homes and up to 6,800 square metres of commercial space. The scheme known as the Herringham Quarter Project, that one. Also in London, we've seen aforementioned London Borough of Sutton issuing two recent tenders, one of which is for the redevelopment of four sites in the centre of Sutton as part of the council's overall regeneration plans for the town centre. Plans include a retail, dining, cultural leisure development, creating an enhanced civic accommodation with greater prominence in the town, which will include a new civic hub as well. So this scheme will also seek to address the shortage of local housing by increasing housing supply. And another affordable housing joint venture is the Elm Grove Regeneration, which will consist of around 300 mixed tenure homes, as well as commercial and community floor space at the Market House building on Sutton High Street. So that's all the ones in the UK. And as I understand it, the one down under is one that's a, a bit of a different scale, right? Yeah, that's right. So we've seen a preferred bidder named for that one. You're talking about the Melbourne Affordable Housing Project. So Tetris Capital and Icon Kojima have been appointed as preferred bidder. They're going to be taking on Victoria's second so-called ground lease public housing renewal project, which is part of the Victorian government's big housing build programme, 5.3 billion Australian dollar building programme. So it seems like pretty big movements over there. Because it's not just in you know, Europe and Australia that have done this. And I'm thinking about in Colorado, they recently passed some legislation to get more housing projects through P3s done. And workforce housing as well. In Florida, we've seen a few projects like that. What about in North America? Are you seeing much housing stuff like that? So not as much as the UK in recent months, but we've seen a couple of kind of regeneration projects coming through in recent weeks. The city of Vero Beach in Florida is currently seeking private partners for a 38-acre waterfront parcel known as Three Quarters. A request for proposals has been issued by the authorities and private partners will be required to redevelop a former power plant site into a commercial and recreational marina that will serve as a major economic hub. And in Ohio, the Cuyahoga Riverfront project in Cleveland is part of a local drive to regenerate the area and deliver the Vision for the Valley initiative, which is a broad plan for the future of the Cuyahoga River. And uh, finally, in Canada, private sector partners are being sought to deliver a science centre relocation P3 in Ontario. Sounds like quite an interesting one. It's going to include a multi-storey, mixed-use development, underground car park, and a retrofit of the existing Cinesphere and Pod complex. We are seeing over in America lots of these different projects that bring together quite a few elements, like you say, whether it's a riverfront development and some housing or sure. a brand, a whole campus might be redeveloped with, a, like you say, a museum there. I'm not exactly sure what a Cinesphere is. Hopefully 
Paul, when you're at CCPPP this year, you can try and find out for us. It's a new one on me, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds interesting. But it's good to see. I mean, there's lots of new projects around the world. And for anyone in that kind of housing sector, they can really make a difference. Well, thank you very much, Rory. And thanks to all the listeners. Uh, see you again soon.